Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Throughout World War I, military court proceeding against Australian troops was kept out of British hands. Only Australian officers could court-martial Australian soldiers much to the disgust of our senior British soldiers, particularly old Dougie Haig. It's widely believed that the reason behind this was the trial and execution by an English court-martial of Harry Brake Morant and Peter Hancock. And while this may be at least partially correct, there was another scandal in 1901 involving British military justice against Australian troops. It was known as the Wilmans Rust Affair, and eventually would even get the newly minted Australian Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, involved. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. If you're listening to this episode on the day it is uploaded, then it is the 11th of November. You are no doubt aware that in Australia and many other countries around the world, at 11am on the 11th of November, we all stop to take a minute's silence in remembrance of all those, of all nationalities, who have lost their lives as a result of war. I was going to have a minute silence on this episode and realise that not everyone will listen on the day that it is uploaded. So instead, I'll just encourage you all to take a minute today, preferably at 11am, but any time is good, to just give a thought to all those who have died to enable us to have the freedoms we enjoy today, lest we forget. Also, before we get started, I'd like to direct you to another podcast, or at least one episode thereof. Now, Timor Awakening is a peer-to-peer support network for veterans and their families, and along with that, they have a podcast where they interview participants from their programs to hear their stories and hopefully help out others who might be struggling. One of these participants is an old mate of mine, Paul Miller. We both joined up at 16 to become apprentice vehicle mechanics in 1991. If I recall correctly, his room was next door to mine in our first year. 11 Platoon Delta Company was obviously blessed with Australia's finest military talent for that year. Anyway, where I did five and a bit years, Paul did 24, including deployments to East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. His story is not an easy one to listen to at times, particularly for someone who remembers the 16-year-old kid that he was, but I think it's also one that most people need to hear. Those who have served might find some useful advice, and those who haven't served might learn a bit about what our returned soldiers, sailors and airmen go through when they come back home and the military tap is turned off. I've included the link in the show notes to this episode and on the Australian Military History Podcast website. So please go and have a listen and then come straight back to here. So for those who aren't around this whole Boer War thing, more formally known as the Second South African War, here's the basic summary of what was going on. In the early 1800s, as a spoil of war after the Napoleonic Wars, England was granted an area on the southern part of the African continent which, with great imagination, was named South Africa. The fact that it was inhabited by primarily Dutch farmers, known as Boers, didn't rate highly in the discussions, let alone the native tribes who also called the area home. 
So throughout the first half of the 19th century, English influence in the region began to spread with the Anglicisation, the pomifying, of much of the southernmost areas. It wasn't of particularly great interest in the great scheme of the British Empire. India was where it was all happening, with spices and riches and all that. South Africa was pretty much a place which had a couple of convenient ports for resupplying ships moving throughout the rest of the empire. That all changed in the 1860s. Why? Wealth and riches, of course. There was gold in them uh, hills. And not just gold, but diamonds as well. All of a sudden, England was very interested. More English people poured into the region in search of a quick bob or two. Tensions rose between the Wheatlanders, as the Boers called them, and the Dutch. Cecil Rhodes, he of the Rhodes Scholarship, which was named in his honour, was at that time the boss of the British South African Company. By 1895, he was in a position to influence the region. He did so by launching a raid into the Transvaal under the command of Leander Star Jameson. The idea was that the Wheatlanders in the area would rise up and overthrow Dutch rule in the area, thereby deposing Paul Kruger, the President of the South African Republic, and give the old Dart complete control and access to all the shiny goodies. But the raid failed, and understandably, Mr Kruger was not happy. The German Kaiser sided with Kruger and began sending arms to assist him in defending the Transvaal, much to England's disgust. It would be another 20 years before the full impact of this action came to fruition, but at the time it empowered Kruger to deny rights, such as voting, to anyone of British heritage. Essentially, this gave England the excuse it needed to send a proper military expedition to take control of the gold and diamonds of the area, under the auspices of protecting British subjects. And so, in 1899, the Boer War kicked off. And, as would be the norm for the next half century, when the Poms went to war, Australians willingly jumped into the fray. At the time, the nation of Australia was still a couple of years away, so the Australian contribution consisted of independent forces raised from each of the six colonies. One such force was the 5th Victorian Mounted Rifles. The 5th VMR embarked for South Africa in mid-February 1901 and arrived in South Africa in late March. They were assigned to the Pretoria region up in the northern part of South Africa and formed part of the English column under the command of an English Major General, Sir Stuart Brownlow Beaton, KCB, KCSI, KCVO, ABC, RSVP, LOL. Sorry, I got carried away there. It was while under the command of Beaton that things went quickly south for the Vicks. In organising his column, Beaton split the 5th VMA into two wings. The left wing, consisting of E, F, G and H companies, was put under the command of Major Morris of the Royal Field Artillery. Morris had only recently arrived in South Africa after a long period of fighting in India. The Boer conducted a war differently to the Indians. With small local units under their own commanders operating under a looser form of control to a traditional army. The term, which has become synonymous with small, hard-hitting units in armies across the world throughout the 20th century, had its origin with the Boers. They called these units commandos, and Morris's inexperience in dealing with commandos would soon have dire consequences, particularly for the Victorians under his command. Morris was ordered to take his 350 troops to make a sweep of the south of Pretoria. I'll let Hector MacDonald describe the lead-up to the affair in the letter he sent to his mother, which was reprinted in the Namaruka leader. Quote, We were with General Beetson's column, and after we'd been out about a fortnight, he sent some of us off with two pom-poms to form a flying column. We had been about three days when we began to see boars against the skyline, just out of rifle range. As we were not very strong, about 300, 
we knew we were in for a warm time. However, we went all right until the fourth night, and then the crash came. We were camped at a place called Wilderman's Rest, and had just got orders that we were to get up at two o'clock in the next morning and surprise the boars, so we were all sitting around the fire cooking breakfast, as we would have no time in the morning, when, without any warning, crack went about 250 rifles at 30 yards range, end quote. It was classic boar tactics. Track their enemy, but avoid a fight until the ground and conditions were favourable to them, and then hit hard. Their opening volley, fired at around quarter to eight at night, caused the horses of H Company to stampede through the camp. The attackers were dressed in captured uniforms with the brims of their hats turned up at the side, so in the darkness they were nearly impossible to distinguish from the Australians. Total confusion reigned. Boar troops rushed through the camp firing as fast as they could, killing men still struggling to emerge from their tents or retrieve their weapons where they had been grouped together. Back to Hector MacDonald. Quote, As soon as we realised what it meant, we made for our rifles, but only about 50 could get them. I never got mine. Our men tried to keep them back, but it was no good. They were in the middle of our camp 10 minutes after they started. To give you an idea of their fire, I might say they shot 38 of our horses in that first volley. It is a good thing the horses were there, or we would have all been shot. There were some of our fellows in bed who were shot where they lay. They never moved. And there were three others sitting by the fire with me, who all got wounded. I don't know how I got out of it. The after effects were terrible. I can't describe the scene. Everywhere we looked, they were dead and dying. The poor fellows who were wounded were screaming and groaning all night. After the boars left the camp, we went searching for the wounded in extended order. And every few yards we went, we would find some poor fellow dead or wounded. End quote. It was about this time the balls returned, but there was little to no fighting. They ordered the survivors to surrender, which, having little choice, they did. But a Boer commando has little in the way of facilities for such a large group of prisoners, and after about two hours they departed the scene, taking the two pom-poms, all the ammunition, and whatever they managed to loot from the dead. A relief party from the right wing arrived the next morning to find a scene reminiscent of a slaughterhouse, not a battlefield, according to Lance Corporal Arthur Ruddle. Quote, we dug one big hole about six feet deep and twenty feet long, as we had eighteen killed in all, and we buried them all in the one hole, put stones on top and a fence around. End quote. Victorian casualties were heavy. Regimental surgeon Herbert Palmer of Ballarat was killed along with eighteen NCOs and men. Five officers and thirty six NCOs and men were wounded. The events of that night would have been enough on their own to leave a dark stain on the psyches of those involved but it would be the events following the disaster which would bring the event to the attention of the wider population in Australia. It all began with General Beetson's reaction upon hearing the news of the attack. Up to that point, he had been full of praise for the Australians, impressed with their general abilities as soldiers. But that opinion changed after Wilman's rust. Later that week, during a march with the column, he was asked by a colleague what he thought of the 5th VMR. He replied angrily, quote, I'll tell you what I think. The Australians are a damn fat, round-shouldered, useless crowd of wasters. In my opinion, they are a lot of white-livered curs. You can add dogs, too. End quote. Not exactly complimentary. He obviously felt that the debacle at Wilmer's Rust was due to a lack of courage and fighting spirit in the Colonials. And he wasn't backwards in letting the Victorians know of his feelings. He came across a group slaughtering a pig for food. He's alleged to have said, quote, Yes, that's about all you're good for. When the Dutchman came the other night, you didn't fix bayonets and charge them, but you go for something they can't hit back. End quote. What's that book called? How to Make Friends and Influence People? 
Maybe if it had been round back then, he may have tempered his remarks, but probably not. Anyway, the animosity he felt towards the Victorians was returned with interest. A week later, the column returned to camp at Middleburg, where, in the manner of soldiers, stories were told, opinions proffered, and a general feeling of discontent circulated. On 7th of July, the Victorians were out on another operation. Trooper James Steele, sitting with his mates Arthur Richards and Herbert Parry, after the order had been issued, said it would be better for the men to be shot than to go out with a man who called them white-lipped curs. Nothing unusual, really, for soldiers who felt their honour had been insulted. Unfortunately for these three troopers, Steele's comment and his companion's agreement was overheard by an English officer. Feeling that the comment was a refusal to carry out orders, the officer ordered the arrest of the Australians. They were given a summary court-martial, found guilty and sentenced to death. All military death sentences at the time needed to be endorsed by the Supreme Commander in the field, on this occasion Lord Kitchener of Khartoum. On this occasion, Kitchener commuted the death sentence to ten years imprisonment for Steele and one year each for the others. Morant and Hancock weren't so lucky a year later when Kitchener confirmed their death sentences. A port of inquiry was established to investigate the events at Wilman's Rust. After interviewing those who were there, two main issues became apparent. The blame for neither issue could or would be laid on the Victorians. First, it became apparent that the pickets were placed too far apart. They had been personally positioned by Major Morris, based on how he had previously set pickets in India. That was fine for combating the larger forces the Indians usually mustered, but for the Boer commandos, he might as well have brushed off the welcome mat. The gaps between the pickets were so wide, the Boers simply slipped through them unnoticed. The second issue was that of the King's regulations and how it pertained to the stacking of rifles. Now, when I was a young lad in the army, it was drilled into us, in no uncertain terms, that when in the field, your rifle should never be more than an arm's length away. This would seem to be common sense. But no, in King's regulations, circa 1901, it was laid down that rifles are to be stacked away from the tents in which the soldiers are sleeping. I wish I could give you some inspired insight into why this would be a requirement, but for the life of me, I can't think of a single valid reason for doing so. Regardless, that was the way it was done. The obvious result of this was that when the boar charged into the camp, the soldiers didn't have any rifles close at hand with which to return fire. For a bit of an image of how all this might have looked, check out the scene in the movie Breaker Morant, starring Edward Woodward and Brian Brown, where the boars launch an attack against the garrison in which Morant is being held. The early stages of that scene, I think, must have been close to what Wilman's Rust must have been like, particularly in regards to the stacking of rifles. Anyway... For the positioning of the pickets, Major Morris was officially censured and the Victorians could hardly be blamed for following King's regs. During the inquiry, another British officer, General Sir Bindon Blood, no, that's actually his name, remarked that chicken-hearted behaviour of the officers and men generally of the Victorian Mount Royals on this occasion, we must remember that they were all a lot of recruits together and that their behaviour was only what was to be expected in the circumstances. End quote. This was more than Major William McKnight, commander of the 5th VMR left wing, could stand. Since it had been established that the fault for the incident lay with Major Roberts, the slurs by Beetson and Blood were gross insults. Beetson offered a belated apology, which McKnight refused to accept. You go, big fella. After all, there were three Australians at this point in jail merely for voicing their disgust at Beetson's comments. News of the whole affair inevitably made its way back to Australia, particularly in Melbourne, and criticism of Beetson and the handling of the affair circulated wildly. 
a petition was sent to King Edward VII, politely requesting the release of Steele, Richard and Parry. Personal representations were made by prominent Australians living in London and by Prime Minister Edmund Barton. Eventually, the pleading paid off. And in October 1901, the three men were released and returned to Australia via South Africa, and the whole affair more or less faded into nothing and largely forgotten. Indeed, upon their departure from South Africa in March 1902, Lord Kitchener telegrammed the 5th VMR officers, stating, quote, Please convey to your Australians my warm appreciation of their gallant and arduous service in this country. In the name of the Army in South Africa, I wish them good luck and Godspeed. End quote. But it wasn't totally forgotten. Three young Australians had come close to being executed merely for speaking their minds in a private conversation. The fact that the British authorities acted so swiftly and excessively under the circumstances, without any consultation with Australia, didn't sit well with many Australians. The country was becoming aware of its own individual character, its egalitarian ideals and the sense of a fair go. This flew in the face of all those things. If the Morant and Hancock executions hadn't occurred within a year of this affair, it may well have remained as nothing more than an uncomfortable feeling in the general public. But in combination, and the fact that the second incident did lead to the deaths of two Australian soldiers, even though Morant was English, galvanised Australian authorities into enshrining into the Defence Act that Australian soldiers could only be court-martialed by Australian officers. Given that World War I was just around the corner, and once again Australian troops would form a small part of the larger British Army, this decision to include that clause in the Defence Act was quite fortunate. We all know the reputation Australian troops acquired for relaxed discipline and general shenanigans, God bless them one and all. No doubt Haig would dearly have loved to be able to shoot a few of them in an attempt to bring the rest into line. There can be little doubt that a number of Australian lives were saved from the vagaries of British military justice as a direct result of Wilmans Russ Affair and Morant and Hancock. At least something good came of it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.